Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom. His fall would tear it apart. Well, hello, everyone, and good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, If that video looks familiar, it's because it is. If you were here during the summer, we looked at the life of David, part one, and here we are, as promised, looking at the second half of his life in part two. And so we'll be picking up his story, more or less, where we left off. Uh, We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. That's the, the scripture reading, and we'll be looking at some selections from David's life throughout the month of December, and we'll tell you why in a second. But first, let's get to the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 through 13. As always, you can follow along on the screen or in the Bible that you brought with you today. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Mekir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. That's God's word this morning. What a great story, isn't it? Yeah, so why David at Christmas? Well, we today, along with Christians from all over the world, begin to celebrate what's called the Advent season, or which means the coming of or the arrival of. And it's worth pointing out that when Jesus was born, he wasn't known as the son of Elijah or the son of Moses or even the son of Joseph, his earthly father. He was known as the son of who? Son of 
Yeah, David, David, if you know your Bible here, son of David, and here's why. Not only was Jesus descended from David, but, but David was Israel's greatest and truest king. And so when we, get, uh, when we see David doing well, when he's at his best, we, we get the best glimpse we can get into the heart of our greater and truer king, Jesus. And really there's no place that David does better than in this story right here as we're going to see Because if you notice, the story isn't about his fall at all. It's really about the peak of his kingship and the height of David's character. And so to understand how far he did fall, which we'll begin to take a look at next week, this morning it's going to be helpful to see that the peak of his rise and the height of David's kingly character. So let's look at those things and and see, I hope, not only what it shows us about him, but really about ourselves and our own hearts as well. Because I believe this morning that this passage right here, what we just read, if you understand it rightly, it's got dynamite inside it. It's got the power inside it to make you an unstoppable person of grace, of healing, and power in this world and the world around you. So let's look at three aspects of this passage to see how we can do that and become that. Let's look at this morning first, the king's question, then the question's answer and finally the answer is reason so there's a question here an answer to it and then a reason for the answer let's begin here number one with the king's question and of course you can see the whole narrative the whole story is started right off the top by a question david asks at the very beginning in verse one he asks is there anyone still left of the house of saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. That's his question. So we see David is looking for someone here, someone in particular, a a, a particular kind of person he can give something to for the sake of someone else. So I want to break down David's question here because if we can understand it rightly, we can understand not only what it teaches us, but we can understand how to do what it shows us. So first let's ask, what is David here? What's he looking to give? He's looking to give something, right? As he says repeatedly in the passage, and you may have seen that, and and what he's looking to give, it's, it's translated sort of weakly, in my opinion, here, but the NIV gives you the word kindness, right? This word kindness, you see it in verse one, you see it in verse three, again in verse seven, and as a matter of fact, in verse three, David doesn't just say kindness, he says it's God's kindness, that he wants to show. And so what is that? What is, what is this thing called God's kindness that David is seeming compelled to express? Well, some of you, again, your translations may give you kindness. Some may give you steadfast love. Some may give you unfailing love. But the reason they're all different and it's a bit tricky is because the translators are trying to get across to you one of the trickiest and really one of the most important technical terms in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, really, it means God's covenant love over and over throughout the Old Testament. It talks about hesed. And here, David says he wants to give that. He wants to give covenant love, right? Not a contract, uh, not a commitment, not a a firm handshake and a look in the eye. No, David's saying, I want to show God's covenant love to someone. And we'll see who that is in a few moments. But I don't want to rush past this thought here because really this thought, what he's looking to give and why is really the whole point of the passage. So let's ask, what is biblical covenant love? 
Well, Robert Putnam, the author of the most in-depth study of American relationships and sociology really ever produced, noted in his book, it's called Bowling Alone, that while more people than ever are bowling today, because you don't see bowling alleys shutting down, do you? It's probably a good business maybe to get into. But actually, he noted, even though more people are bowling, fewer people are bowling together in leagues. Interesting. He says they're bowling alone, and he uses that as a metaphor for America. And he, he found that the level of community in the United States, the, the actual real level of community, has bottomed out over the last few decades. And at the same time that's happened, he's noted, there's been a simultaneous increase, lower educational performance, more teen pregnancy, higher depression rate, higher crime rate. It's fascinating, and it's troubling. So let's ask really what he asked. Why are, why are modern people more likely now to opt to bowl alone, to use his phrase? Well, modern relationships that you're in, that I'm in, that you know, uh, that are based on the modern sense of commitment goes something like this. Here's how the modern relationship goes. We say, I will be in relationship with you and I'll give you my best as long as you keep up, you're into the bargain, right? Uh, I, I, I will stay in the relationship. I'll fulfill my part until you don't make me happy anymore. And then I'm out, right? I commit to be there as long as you make me happy. You keep you up, you're in. But I reserve the right to decommit whenever I want to with no reasons given, right? But in a biblical covenant, by contrast, two people look at each other and say, I commit that I will fulfill my promise to you to be to you what I promise to be to you, no matter if you keep up your end of the deal or fulfill your promise to me. Yeah, that's staggering. It's different, isn't it? And it's also a bit scary. Let's look at them a bit more in depth here. The modern commitment says, my needs are more important than the relationship. My freedom is more important than the relationship. But biblical covenant says the relationship is more important than my needs. The limiting of my personal freedom is a gift I give to you. Now that's covenant love. And that's what David is looking to give here, right? And now, can you, can you see the difference? I mean, there's a big difference here. There's an enormous difference. There's a staggering difference. And I believe because the difference is there, we have a hard time understanding what God means, what he's after when he says to us throughout the Bible, especially in places like Deuteronomy 29, when he says, I just, I don't want to be just committed to you. I don't want to just sign a piece of paper or give you a firm handshake. He says, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to be my people. I want to bring you to my heart. And I want to swear an oath to you that I will do that. See, in the strongest possible human terms, from the strongest emotional terms, the strongest legal terms from both sides, he says, that's how much I want you. Now, is that how much you want me? Huh. You say, man, this whole God of a God of covenant thing sounds like there's a God who wants to be all up in my business. And I'm not really sure that I want that kind of God. Now that you mention it, Morgan, I'm really more spiritual than I am anything else. And, you know, I, I believe that I can relate to God however I want to. He's just kind of whoever I think he, he wants to be. But 
Listen, if, if that's you, and that's how you feel, do you see from the Bible, I mean, what you've done, you've just boxed yourself right out of a relationship with the biblical God because you may be relating to something, but it's not to this God. See, the God, the God of the Bible, the one true God, only meets his people on the basis of covenant. Time after time, throughout the Bible, Adam up, Adam, David, Moses, Noah, Abraham, over and over he says, not, I will make a really great contract with you. He says, I will make my covenant with you. My covenant with you. I want to swear to you. I want you to be mine and mine to be, and I, I to be yours. And if that's true, which it is, it would make sense, therefore, that in general, as we grow in our relationship with God, that the overflow of his covenant power would necessarily make its way down and out into our relationships as well with those both inside the church and those outside the church too. So let me apply that thought in each way and just look at the, how covenant love can be expressed both within and without the church. First, those within the church. Dr. Larry Crabb, who's a famous Christian counselor, writer, author, speaker, he puts it like this in his book, Connecting, called Healing for Our Relationships and Ourselves. He says, when two people, when two beings intersect as closely as two bodies during intercourse, something is poured out of one and into the other that has the power to heal the soul of its deepest wounds and restore it to health. The one who gives knows the even greater joy of being used to heal. Something good is in the heart of each of God's children that is more powerful than everything bad. It's there, waiting to be released and work. It's magic. Don't you love that? I love how he puts that. See, that magic thing, that, that, that powerful thing, that healing thing he's describing. Oh, that's God's hesed. That's his covenant love. And David says, for the sake of someone else, I want to give that magic, a healing power away. He's saying, I want my relationships to be marked by covenant love. He's asking, is there anyone that I can heal because of the healing given to me? And that's the king's question. And it's a beautiful question because you'll notice, of course, what David isn't asking, right? He isn't asking, like many modern people, he's not asking, uh, isn't there someone around here who can give me what I need, right? Isn't there someone who, who can give me great customer service when I show up, right? I mean, who's going to show me love? No, his heart is beautiful. It's redemptive here. Not thinking about himself, but thinking about others. He's asking, oh God, Please let there be someone to whom I can show your love and give your healing power away to. And I hope, church, that is exactly, that's the, the heart and the motive and the question that we can all ask whenever we gather and we're together. I mean, could you imagine when you hit the parking lot, right? When you showed up in your community group, uh, when you showed up to, to give of yourself an MKIS or MUTH or at the front door of the coffee bar or parking lot or wherever, if you asked, is there anyone that I can show God's kindness to today? And we didn't just come asking, is there anyone who can show kindness to me today, right? I mean, imagine what kind of a healing church and community we would be if we all hit whatever environment we hit, asking that question, right? Is there anyone I can show kindness to? And therefore, in general, if you are a Christian, what this passage shows us today is this. 
that your relationships should be marked by hesed, God's covenant love. You, in general, as a rule, we should be, you and I, we should be committers, not consumers. But second, imagine if we could show that, if we could show hesed, covenant love, God's kindness to those outside the church as well. What might that look like? Well, Father Gregory Boyle, if you've never heard of him, Father Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest, and for the last 30 years, Father Gregory has ministered to gang members in inner city Los Angeles, really tough part of town, with equal turns, comic and tragic results. He's the founder of Homeboy Industries, a variety of business endeavors such as tattoo removal, uh, t-shirt printing, grocery shops, baking stores, uh, all dedicated to giving gang members and the recently incarcerated a second chance, or really for most of them, a first chance at life. And so Father Gregory has been invited to the White House. He's received uncounted humanitarian awards. He's been on 60 Minutes and been an interview by Mike Wallace. And in his book called Tattoos on the Heart, he describes the power of unconditional covenant love, which he calls kinship. That's his word for it, kinship. And he tells countless stories of redemption. One of them is this. And in one of his stories, he said that he had recently gone to Washington, D.C., and he said, I took two homies with me. Lewis and Joe, big, huge guys. They'd been to prison, heavily tattooed. They'd never been to our nation's capital. He said, we gave a briefing to a bunch of senatorial and congressional types about our work in L.A. The next day, we toured D.C., and went to the Holocaust Museum, which he described as an incredibly emotional experience. Three hours later, after the tour, they gathered to, to debrief and to talk about their experience. And he said, we noticed there was a desk in the museum. And on one side of the desk was a, uh, an older maybe uh, an older man, maybe in his 80s. On the other side of his desk was an empty chair. And there was a sign on the desk that said, Holocaust Survivor, clearly with the indication of the opportunity for someone to come and sit and talk to him. And so and Dr. Father Gregory says that Joe and I, one of his, his, his friends, he said, we looked at each other and said, man, who, who's going to go talk to that guy? I mean, how could we possibly have anything to say to a Holocaust survivor who suffered so much? But he said, Lewis, the other guy, Lewis is fearless. Lewis says, I'm going to go talk to him. So Lewis goes and sits down. The, the man's name across the table was Jacob. Jacob, excuse me, Lewis shakes his hand and said, and asked, so what camp were you in? And Jacob says, Auschwitz. And so Jacob, as it turns out, entered the camp as a 13-year-old boy, came out at the age of 17, four years later when the camp was liberated. Both of his parents were killed there. Five sisters and brothers were executed there. His own niece and nephew were killed in front of his eyes. Now, Jacob was a worker, an industrial worker, and so he managed to survive the camp. And Lewis listened to his story. Then Lewis pulled a card out of his pocket, and he handed it to Jacob, and he said, I work at Homeboy Industries. It's the largest gang intervention program in the country. I hope you come and visit. And Jacob uh, sort of looked at the card, didn't really seem to engage, but Lewis kept on talking and, and began to press him. And he said, uh, I'm 27 years old, and I've spent 11 of those years locked up in prison. But Jacob at that point began to talk. He got a little dismissive of American prisons and said, ah, oh, you had your own room, your own mattress, a pillow. He said, I slept on boards. The guards would pull me out of line and beat me if I even so much as spoke or looked at him. And Lewis listened, and then he said, yeah. He said, I was beat down many times at county jail once they dragged me out of line. They beat me so badly. My head, he said, my head looked like a, I was the elephant man. They threw me naked in a cell and I slept on a metal sheet. 
And Jacob sort of stopped and listened. And Father Gregory says, well, when, when, when Lewis began to relate the story to him, he says, that's where I, I intervened. I cut him off. I said, Lewis, uh, uh, Father Gregory said, Lewis, let me see if I got this right. You were comparing your experience to a Holocaust survivor's experience. But Lewis was quick and clear. He said, and he said, no, I wasn't comparing. There is no comparison between what he suffered and what I've gone through. Father Gregory says, then I watched as Lewis made an additional calculation in his head. And his, Lewis's eyes filled up with tears. And Lewis said, no, that I wasn't competing with him. I was connecting with him. And Father Gregory closes his thought with this quote, and he says, that's exactly right. Suddenly, he said, kinship, covenant love, so quickly. Then he closes his book with this, with this summation. It's beautiful. He says, the measure of your compassion lies not in your service of those on the margins, but in your willingness to see yourselves in kinship with them, connected to them, to move beyond the service of the other to a solidarity where your heart is in the right place. And now finally to a place of kinship where your feet are in the right place. And everyone will claim that what you are doing when you do this is indeed a waste of your time. And he closes the book quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He says, but in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. It's a great vision, isn't it? It's a great thought. Let me ask you today, church, is there anyone anyone to whom you could show hesed, God's covenant love? Is there anyone today to whom you could give God's healing power to? When you show it, when you do that, when you give it, oh, as Isaiah says, it can turn a wasted life even to singing. So that's number one. That's covenant love. And David asked the question, is there someone I can give that to? And the answer is, of course, number two. The answer is yes, there is an answer to that. But as we've seen, David doesn't just want to show kindness to anyone, but to someone in particular. Who is it? Let's see. David asked, again, verse one, is there anyone still left of the house where? Of Saul, yeah. Why is this important? Well, as you may know, Saul was, da- was excuse me, Israel's previous king. And David now is looking for a descendant of Saul's family. David finds out there's still an old, you know, an old servant of Saul still around, Ziba. He calls him in, interrogates him, finds out that Saul's grandson is still living. A man by the name of Mephibosheth out in a place called Lodabar. It means no pasture, a wasteland. And we're told Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. So David finds him, he summons him in. Mephibosheth then comes in, shuffles in before David. And did you notice what it said when Mephibosheth was brought before the king? It said, this is the NIV version. It says, he bowed down to pay him honor. Now, let me just say, I don't believe that really gets to the heart of what's going on there, of what's going on in the situation. But Dr. Robert Alter, of course, the great Hebrew scholar, translates that verse. Verse 6 is this. He says, And Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and here's the Hebrew verb, flung himself on his face and prostrated himself. So why, though? 
why would Mephibosheth do this? You think, well, that's sort of, you know, you know, ancient courtly groveling, you know, sort of like, oh, king, live forever, that kind of stuff. But no, Dr. Alter says, don't go so fast. He said, quote, these gestures of abasement may have been standard etiquette in approaching a monarch, but Ziba is not reported making them, right? I mean, one guy does it, but not the other. Why is that? He says, Mephibosheth is clearly terrified that the king may have summoned him in order to have him put to death. And it should be noted, it would have been a particularly painful business for a man crippled in both legs to fling himself down in this fashion. In other words, this isn't courtly groveling. This is a grown man flopping on the floor, begging for his life. Why? Oh, because in those days, when a new king like David took power, the name of the game was consolidation by elimination. A new king would eliminate his political enemies to consolidate his power and standing. And Mephibosheth, of course, was in the line of Saul, the previous king who had, for 20 years, tried to kill David with no success. And once Saul died in battle, you may know, part of Israel propped up Saul's own son, a surviving son named Ishbosheth, and part of the nation followed Ishbosheth. Part of the nation followed David. And for seven long years, there was a bloody and heated civil war that divided the nation, ended only by Ishbosheth's death. And so, therefore, in a very real way, by every moral standard and by logic itself, David would have been within his rights as a king and leader and would have been expected to hear this for the sake of his nation, for the sake of his own safety, for the sake of his children's safety, for the sake of peace and rest of his whole country. David would have been expected, expected, to hunt down and end Saul's family line. But he doesn't do it, does he? He doesn't do it, no. In fact, David, what does he do? Oh, he does the opposite, right? I mean, David, at the risk of his own life, can you see? The risk of his children's lives, the risk of further instability in his own nation, at the risk of seeming disloyal to all those soldiers, the military who had followed him and risked their lives for him, at the risk of of being politically misunderstood David brings home an enemy and not just an enemy the enemy right his enemy and David didn't just bring him back to live oh no look at what he did David said don't be afraid because Mephibosheth was afraid he said for I will surely show you kindness see that's covenant love language right there for the sake of your father Jonathan I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table this is amazing look at the kind of person he's bringing home I mean quite literally David is bringing a political refugee into his own home but not just any kind of refugee one from another culture one from another previous nation and tribe for a while the nation was divided this was a man from a rival tribe whose family had sworn to kill David and now David swears to him he will bring him into his own house his own nation and care for him at the cost and expense of his own household. Well, why does he do this, right? I mean, this is unheard of in his day. Look it up in the Old Testament. The kings would murder their political rivals, but David doesn't. Oh, it's still unheard of in ours today. I mean, could you imagine the Bushes and the Clintons, you know, getting together around the table for Clinton? No, they wouldn't do this. Where does this kind of thing come from? 
C.S. Lewis, in the appendix of his book called The Abolition of Man, he notes that, and this is important, notes that really almost all the major world religions, they, they more or less teach you the same thing, right? I mean, you know, it's better to, to, to be faithful to your wife and to, to be an adulterer. It's better to, to, you know, to love than to hate. Stealing's bad. Don't kill your neighbor. Let him live. All that's, you know, that's common. And his point is this. He says, if you really want to distinguish worldviews, if you really want to know what's up with Christianity, what's the deal with it, why? Why are we even talking about it? He says, don't look at a faith system's list of commands. He says, look at their soteriology. There's your million dollar word. That's a word that means the theology of salvation or how a person is saved because every faith system at its root is trying to answer the question, what makes me right as a person? What makes me good? Why am I okay? And he said, only Christianity says, you are not saved by your good works. Only Christianity says you're not saved by obeying the law and obeying its own commands. He says, in fact, he says Christianity, it's counterintuitive. It goes one step further. He says, if you really insist on doing good things to know you're right with God, he says, the Bible says you're in a sense doubly cursed. Why? Because only Christianity says you're made right. Not by your good deeds, but by the deeds of another. And only Christianity has at its center the person of Jesus dying, not just for his friends, but for who? His enemies, yeah. His enemies. What's Jesus doing as he dies? He's forgiving his enemies, loving the ones who are murdering him. And that's where this kind of thing comes from. See, David's actions foreshadow Jesus' centuries later. And therefore, at its essence, that is what distinguishes Christianity from every other faith system. It's a Savior who not only teaches you and it's me and his followers to love their enemies and forgive them, which is unheard of outside the Bible, but then a Savior who follows his own teaching to his own death. See, and here's why he did it. It's about to get worse. (laughs) Because the Bible insists that on our own, we come pre-wired as God's enemies. That we're God's enemies. Like Mephibosheth was the king's enemy. We're not born as God's friend. As a matter of fact, Paul in Romans says, there's no one who seeks God on their own. How about that? Thank you, Paul, for being the optimist there. No, you say, well, don't like, you know, like a 90% of Americans in polls that I don't, don't like 90% of Americans say they believe in God. Well, yeah, they may believe in like an idea of a God or a God who only accepts, who only loves everything, right? But the real God, I mean, the biblical God, the God who thunders from Mount Sinai, who gives 10 commandments, who says, be holy as I am holy, who says, the guilty I will not pardon. Oh, we don't just not like that God. We hate that God. Down deep, we hate that God. And if you don't believe me, just go on any talk show today and quote those verses. I mean, go on The View and play in that little podcast recording. See how they respond. Don't do it. Thank you. I don't want to be on Twitter for the rest of my life. All right. No. See, we, we Americans, we like the idea of a God who only accepts, but we don't want, hear this, a king with power over us who can command life and death. You say, well, man, that kind of sounds frightening, and it is. And maybe now you can understand how Mephibosheth felt, right? When the king called his name, when the one, again, who had the power to command life and death summoned him before him 
into his presence. Oh, we, like Mephibosheth, we're all scared of the true king if we're in our right minds. We ask, what will he do to me? And if today you're frightened of serving God for some reason, if you hear and you say, well, you know, if I serve him, that means I got to give up that relationship. I know it's wrong, but I got to, I got to give that up. Or, you know, I'm afraid of what God will will take from me. I'm going to have to come out of hiding and face God. What's he going to do to me? If you're feeling like that, listen, it's only because you don't know that at the very moment you humble yourself and you throw yourself before the king at that very moment, you're received and adopted and brought up and given a status and a privilege and a position and a power like you never even thought of or felt before because that's oh church that's what happened to Mephibosheth the son of shame because that's what his name means son of shame dropped as a child in hiding from the king this describes our condition to a t dropped in a fall hiding from a king but now he was called out like we can be loved adopted into the king's family. Look at how the passage ends. It shows us what our lives can be like. What a beautiful scene. Verse 13, it says, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, the king's palace, the king's city. He always ate at the king's table, though he was lame in both feet. And that's the answer to David's question. Oh, yes, there was someone to whom he could show God's chesed, his healing It was to his enemy, and he did it. It's beautiful. But the question still remains, why, right? I mean, why would David do this? He does it. It shows us the heart of the true king, but why does he do this? I mean, what reason could he have to risk everything for this kind of person? Well, that's now, finally, number three, the answer's reason. What reason could he have had? What reason can we possibly have, right, to love our enemies, To reach across political lines, love our political enemies, that's what David's doing here. Reach across cultural barriers, that's what David's doing here. How can we love those who don't just love us back? Oh, there's a hint of it back in verse 1. Again, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? For what? For Jonathan's sake. Yeah, Jonathan's sake. Oh, yeah. Earlier, you may know this if you were here in the summer, earlier in David's life, the the prophet Samuel at God's leading had gone to David's household in Bethlehem, had anointed David as the future king of Israel, even though there was a current king of Israel. And the reason Samuel had done this was because God had looked at the current king, Saul, had saw the way Saul had abused his power, was corrupting the heart of his people and turning them away from him. And God said, I've had enough. I'm going to raise up a man after my own heart. And that man is David. When Saul found that out, as you would imagine, over and over, he tried to kill David, envious, jealous. But over and over, someone stepped in to protect and rescue and serve David. It was Saul's own son, Jonathan, which infuriated Saul all the more. After all, in Saul's mind, there already was a future king. It was his own son in his own line. Don't you know, Jonathan? Saul would scream at him. If David lives... Your kingdom dies. Hmm. But Jonathan did it anyway. He saved his friend. And back in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20, we, we watched David and Jonathan's friendship blossom. We see them making a covenant of friendship with each other. And Jonathan, we watch him. He perceives David's anointing, perceives God's hand on the future king. And Jonathan takes off his own 
tunic. He gives David his own sword. These were tokens of his position and power and his right to the throne one day. And Jonathan gives them up to David. And then we watch Jonathan go one step further. And along with his lunatic and demented father, he dies a tragic death on Mount Gilboa. And David's rise to the throne was complete. What a friend David had. Jonathan showed David Hesed. Covenant love, covenantal friendship. Hear this. And it changed David so much that decades later, he's still thinking about it. Decades later, it's still shaping how he ruled, shaping how he related to everyone around him, how he related to his own enemies. Is there anyone I can show love to, David asked, for the sake of the one who loved me first? It's beautiful. It's the king's question. Oh, church, I tell you, there's a greater friend than we have than David had. It's a greater Jonathan. We have another crown prince, another beautiful young man who lost his beauty and gave it away, gave up his throne and his rights, put down his robes and his sword that he could have rightfully held against us and died. Not on Mount Gilboa, but on Mount Calvary. He got the sword we deserved that we could be adopted into his family. And church, I tell you, we have another, we have a greater king than even Israel had it, a greater king than David. Because David, yeah, he paid to bring Mephibosheth back at the risk of his life, at the risk of his kingdom. But Jesus, the greater king, greater David, he's paid to bring us back at the cost of his life, at the cost of his kingdom. Jesus, oh, he died the death we all deserve. We, we enemies of God, we Mephibosheths who have been shattered by the fall. And if you know that, like Charles Wesley did, you can sing just like he wrote. This is what he said when he, looking at passages like this, he said, oh, oh, love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me hath died. My Lord, my love, is crucified. Second verse, is crucified for me and you. Here's the point. To bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. Ye all are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for all flows from his side. My Lord, my love, is crucified And he did it though. He did it not just to bring us back, not just to restore us, but it gets even better. Even beyond our imagination to give us, oh, not just a new heart and a new status, but the book of Revelation says at the end of time when Jesus returns and the new heavens and the new earth come to pass, we get a new name, a new name. It means a new identity. Who we were to him all along, though we never knew it. For you see Mephibosheth's name, wasn't really Mephibosheth. He wasn't always known as the son of shame. He was born with a a different name. His real name, his real name was Mirabel, the Baal fighter, the false god fighter, the one who stood with his father against the king's enemies. Oh, and now as David has restored him at the king's table in a real way, he stands again equal with all God's children. I mean, Could you imagine David's table, right? I mean, in comes beautiful Absalom, gorgeous Absalom, the lovely Tamar, the brilliant Solomon, the warrior Joab, right? Clever Amnon, all making their way to the table. And then down the hall comes shuffling that old Mephibosheth, the son of shame. 
And here he is. He comes to the table. But as he would do this, as they all reclined around the table, as the tablecloth once more covered his feet, he was once again restored, made new, made equal, standing again with the king's children, transformed into who he was meant to be all along. The gospel is that God in Jesus Christ has done this and more for us. The kind of gospel is God's done for this for us because of the covenant love shown to us through our king, brother, savior, friend, Jesus. He's carried us to his own table, seated us where we don't belong. Is there anyone here today, I believe God's asking, to whom he can show said to covenant love, friendship, for the sake of his son Jesus. Is there anyone here? We're going to sing. We're going to take the Lord's table in just a moment. And as our, our music team comes and plays, I want to trust that the power of his hesed, of his covenant love, will begin to strike your heart, move your heart, and even change your heart. Let me pray for you here as we close and transition. Oh God, I believe like David did so long ago, you're asking, is there someone you can show your covenant kindness to for the sake of someone else, for the sake of your son Jesus? You're asking, is there someone here, in a sense, hiding in Lodabar, a place of no pasture, it's a wilderness, displaced, fallen, broken. Is there anyone here today who would be carried? Be carried. If you're here this morning and you said, you know what, I never become a Christian before, I never asked Jesus to care, I never admitted I was broken apart from him, lost all that. But today, I want to come home to his table, give my life to him. Would you raise your hand this morning if you pray? Lord, I pray for all of us as we take a, a few more moments to meditate on this. Our hearts would be moved out of the beauty of what you've done for us and that we in turn would give this to one another in Jesus' name.